morning. I'm so grateful to be able to speak to you today. I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles to the New Testament, and in just a moment we'll turn to Acts chapter 1, but first I would like to read from John chapter 20. John 20, the account that many of you are familiar with of the account of Thomas, verses 24 through 29. If you have found your places, if you're able to, I would ask you to please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. These are not my words or the words of man, but the words of God. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And now if you would, uh, if you have a Bible like mine, just turn one page over to Acts chapter 1. This would be found on page 909 if, you have, if you're using a pew Bible from the rack in front of you. And we're just going to read the first three verses of the book of Acts. So again, please hear the continuation of the reading of God's word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering, by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Let me read verse 3 again. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, creator of heaven and earth and all that is, we pray that you would use your word this morning to reveal your Son to us. We ask that you would send your Spirit to work powerfully in our hearts, that we would see with eyes of faith the glory of the Son of God. 
that we would embrace him with faith. That we would resolve to live our lives in obedience to his will for us. We pray that you would accomplish that in us by your power and your grace. We pray it in his name. Amen. Please be seated. We're looking today at the proof of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. It's not that I'm going to present every proof that could be given or try to answer every possible objection. But from the pages of the New Testament, I do want to give some essential reasons why Christians believe that Jesus rose from the dead. We believe there are solid reasons for the factual basis of Christianity that we can give that will serve both to strengthen our faith and to help us present the claims of Christ to unbelievers. As we engage with an unbelieving world and sometimes unbelief in our own hearts, we are called to answer these kinds of questions. Did the resurrection of Christ really happen? Is it a myth or legend? Is it a story that's just so full of beautiful symbolism that it doesn't really matter whether it's literally true or not? Or is it a historical fact? Is it an event that actually happened in a real place at a real time? And of course, the Word of God gives us clear, specific answers to every one of these questions. God has spoken. He reveals himself in this word, and what he tells us there makes it absolutely clear. He wants us to know with complete certainty he has raised his son, Jesus, from the dead. And furthermore, that one event makes all the difference in understanding the world and living life the way that we do. Some of you have heard about a tragedy that took place here in White Settlement this week. Some of you have lost family members or relatives uh, in recent weeks. The resurrection of Christ makes all the difference in how we look at those events and how we prepare for those kinds of events. Now, as we look at the proof of the resurrection this morning, basically there are, I primarily have three groups of people in mind that I, I want to Uh, Address. I want to speak to for the most part. Uh, The first group would be those, perhaps there's not very many here among us, but I want to address you if you are here, and that would be those who are unsure if everything we read in the New Testament about Jesus is in fact reliable. And so if that's you, you may be holding back from making a commitment to Christ, from giving your life to Him and trusting Him because. You have not decided who or what to believe when it comes to religion and claims about ultimate truth. In fact, there are a lot of different religions out there, a lot of competing worldviews, and so you may wonder how we can know if one of those systems of thought is really the right one to the exclusion of all others. Second group here this morning may be somewhat larger. This may be many of you. It's made up of those who believe in Christ, 
They accept the teaching of Scripture. They're serious about following Him. But there are also times when they're plagued by doubt. And so if you are in this group, perhaps you sometimes wonder if you and your Christian friends have been mistaken all along. And sometimes your uncertainty may drain you of your zeal for pursuing and knowing Christ. Sometimes it may rob you of your effectiveness as a witness for Christ. So maybe there are times when you stay quiet, when you know you really should speak up. You basically chicken out because you don't have the answers you feel you need to combat unbelief, whether it's in your own heart or those around you. And then there is a third group of people I want to address. It may be larger than the other two groups put together. I don't know. But that would be those who are convinced of the truth of Jesus' resurrection. You don't question its historicity or its validity. But it may be that in the hurried activities of your day, in the attitudes and affections of your heart, the truth of Christ's resurrection has become old and stale. The significance of that unique event has lost its impact on the way you think and the way you look at life. And so if that's you, you too need a fresh look at the reality of Christ's resurrection. If you are in unbelief, if you are attacked by doubts, if you are convinced but complacent, the Word of God calls you this morning to repent. That is, to change your mind, to think differently about those events that took place 2,000 years ago and your life in relation to those events. So to help us think correctly about the resurrection of Christ, I have three points, three main points I want to propose this morning. The first one is this. The proof of the resurrection lies at the heart of the New Testament and the entire Christian faith. The proof of the resurrection lies at the heart of the New Testament and the entire Christian faith. Now, our primary text this morning, which we've already read, is found in Acts 1, 3. It told us he, and that is Jesus, of course, he presented himself alive to them, that would be the apostles, after his suffering by many proofs. And the nature of those proofs is then explained in the following phrase, appearing to them during 40 days. As he was appearing to them, he was also teaching them. As it says here in our verse, he was speaking about the kingdom of God. We sang several times about the kingdom of God this morning. There's a lot we could say about it. It's mentioned here at the beginning of Acts as sort of a summary of the teaching of Jesus. Also, at the end of Acts, summary of the teaching of Paul, many places throughout the book of Acts, we could in fact say that the kingdom of God is the theme of the New Testament. But the obvious relationship between the kingdom of God and the resurrection of Christ, which is what we're looking at this morning, is a kingdom needs a king, doesn't it? And furthermore, it needs a living king. It needs a king who is alive. A dead king cannot rule or save the subjects of his kingdom. 
So Jesus is presented to us as a living king who conquers every one of his enemies, including death. And we are looking with special interest and emphasis on one word in this verse, and that is the word proofs. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Now, we don't want to look at this word or this phrase, this phrase in isolation from its context, either the immediate context or the context of the overall purpose of the book of Acts. Uh, in fact, Luke, who is the human author of this book, is introducing his subject in a way that gives some important indications what the purpose of the book is. He starts, you will notice in verse 1, he starts by reminding his readers, beginning with his first reader, a man named Theophilus. He reminds them, him and us, of another book that he has written, an earlier work that we call the Gospel of Luke. And he summarizes the contents of that earlier work by saying, in that book he dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. That's what he says in verse 1. Well, his implication is that now in this second work, he is recording for us what Jesus continued to do and teach through his apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. So these opening verses are partly a summary of what has gone before, and they're partly a transition to what is coming next. And the connection between the two books leads us to wonder and examine if perhaps the purpose in writing these two books is in fact the same purpose, or at least one that's very similar. Well, what was his purpose in writing the first book, the Gospel of Luke? We don't have to wonder about that. He spelled it out very clearly for us in the opening verses of Luke. We, I'd like to turn there briefly and read the first four verses of Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, listen to his introduction. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, and here's the ultimate reason, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke is presenting credentials for us. He is a careful historian and a convincing apologist. In other words, he engages in a reasoned defense of the Christian faith and we see that concern reflected both in his gospel account and in the sequel, the book of Acts. In the gospel of Luke, he makes it clear he's done his research. He has talked to eyewitnesses in order to compile an orderly and reliable account. And we see a similar purpose in his choice of words here in Acts 1. The word proof refers to unmistakable signs that show the presence or reality of something. And of course, what Luke has in mind are the visible bodily appearances of Jesus before his apostles. Well, that's at the very beginning of Acts. It lays the foundation for the rest of the book. As he progresses from there, he continues, we see that he continues his apologetic thrust. He continues to demonstrate the truthfulness of the apostolic message. 
One way he does this is by calling attention to the supernatural signs and wonders that God accomplished through the agency of the apostles. If the apostles are representatives for a man that they say has risen from the dead, it might be helpful for them to back up their claim with miraculous deeds that show they're not just making stuff up. They have authority from God. And that's exactly what they demonstrate with the miraculous deeds, which, of course, the book of Acts is so full of. Speaking in foreign languages that the speaker never studied or learned. See that almost from the beginning, Acts in chapter 2. Healing a man who was lame from birth in chapter 3. Healing all kinds of sickness and disease and casting out demons in chapter 5. An angel coming to open prison doors in, in uh, Also in chapter 5, raising a woman from the dead, chapter 9, striking a man blind for opposing them, chapter 13. That's just the beginning, right? We could give so many examples that all point to the divine authority that is present with the apostles. Well, another way that Luke demonstrates the trustworthiness of the apostles is by stressing the consistency of their message with what has gone before them in the Old Testament. And actually, to say that their message is consistent with the Old Testament probably does not go nearly far enough. It's kind of like saying that a key is consistent with a lock, right? Yeah, they're consistent. Yeah, they fit. It's because they're made for one another, right? The key is made to open the lock. The lock is made to be opened by the key. And that's what Peter and James and John insisted was true about the events taking place by the power of Jesus of Nazareth. They unlocked the Old Testament for us. They reveal its true meaning. They make sense of the story of God's people because they fulfilled what God had long ago promised would take place. And again, we could give many examples. I'll just give a few. In chapter 1, Peter says that what happened to Judas fulfilled the scripture which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. Chapter 2, the miracle of speaking in tongues. He says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. The resurrection of Christ, as he continues his sermon at Pentecost. The resurrection of Christ fulfills the prophecy of Psalm 16. In chapter 3, verse 22, Jesus is the prophet spoken of by Moses. In fact, according to verse 24, chapter 3, all the prophets from Samuel on had proclaimed these days. The events that had taken place in first century Jerusalem were the realization of God's promise to Abraham that in his offspring all the families of the earth would be blessed. That's in verse 25. And that just gets us through chapter 3. A little later we get to the Apostle Paul who was converted about a third of the way through the book and he begins to preach the same message about the same resurrected Christ that he once opposed and persecuted Listen to what Paul says about his message in chapter 26. Acts 26, verses 22 and 23. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying what? What's your message, Paul? Saying, Nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer 
and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So the message throughout the book of Acts is the same as what was promised in the Old Testament. And then finally, the message of the apostles is not only consistent with one another, consistent with the Old Testament, their trustworthiness is also confirmed by their willingness to give their lives for the spread of that message. Early in the book, Peter and John are arrested and threatened. Shortly after that, the entire company of the apostles is beaten. A couple of chapters later, Stephen is stoned to death, which sparks intense persecution of all the believers living in Jerusalem. Then James is put to death by the sword. Peter escapes death only by God's miraculous intervention. And after Paul begins to preach Christ, he too is subjected to the same kind of persecution. And eventually we know he will be arrested and imprisoned and finally executed in Rome at the hands of Nero. Now I want us to come back a little bit later to this idea of the apostles giving their lives to consider the trustworthiness of them and their message. But for right now, I, I want to focus more on what the message is that they are giving their lives for. And the short answer is it all centers upon the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I have a number of more passages I want to read. Listen to the, some of these are are intentionally stated as summaries. Some of them are more examples of what the apostles are preaching. Chapter 2, the Sermon at Pentecost, verses 23 and 24. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. A few verses down, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Chapter 3, verse 15. Separate occasion, the same speaker, Peter, says, You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. Chapter 4, verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. <coughs> and verse 33, here's a summary statement of what the apostles were doing and what they were saying. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. See how many examples we can point to. Just a few more. Chapter 10, verses 40 and 41. This is the account of Peter speaking to the household of Cornelius. I think I'll begin in verse 39. He says, We are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, 
But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. We get to chapter 13. Paul is preaching on his first missionary journey. This is what he declares at Antioch in the synagogue at Antioch of Pisidia. Chapter 13, verse 30. Picking up in verse 29. When they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And then finally, Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, Acts 17. He's declaring that God has appointed a man to judge the world. Verse 31, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. How do we know this man is qualified to carry out such an awesome task? Well, here's what he says. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see, everywhere they go, the apostles announce Jesus has risen. They are witnesses. In other words, they have seen it and they are telling everyone what they have seen. And Luke is careful to record for us at least the main ideas or the central element of their message. And for now, I am just pointing out that the multiple ways in which Luke puts forward the truthfulness of his case show that he intends to be taken seriously as a matter of historical fact. It's not fiction. It's not just an inspirational story. It is a claim to be a historical record that stands or falls upon the truthfulness of one central event, and that is the resurrection of Christ. And so there are a few myths that I want us to examine this morning that I believe need to be dispelled when it comes to investigating the claims of Christ and Christianity. The first myth is this. You may have heard something like this this week. If not in so many words, the basic idea. Your choice of religion is ultimately a matter of personal preference. Almost like choosing a favorite artist or a favorite style of music. In our postmodern age, in a society that promotes tolerance for all kinds of religious ideas, this is what many believe. If you want to believe in Jesus, that's fine for you, but you can't say your way is right and all the other ways are wrong. But you see, that kind of compromise, that kind of truce between competing worldviews It doesn't work when you encounter what the writers of the New Testament had to say, does it? They press the point so that you have to respond. Either Jesus rose from the dead or he didn't. And if he did, then you and I and every other living person is obligated to bow before him and confess that he is Lord. And if he didn't, then there's no point in following him at all because his state, if his statements about himself are not true, then he is neither a wonderful teacher nor a good moral example, 
right? He is either a liar or crazy or both. Good teachers don't go around forgiving people of all their sins. You can't do that. Someone who is a good example doesn't stand up and say, I'm going to die and three days later I'm going to rise from the dead. That's not a good example unless it happens to be true. So the entire Christian faith stands or falls with the resurrection of Christ. The proof of the resurrection lies at the heart of the New Testament. But our second point goes a little, a little further and says this. The proof of the resurrection rests upon compelling historical evidence and in no way contradicts sound reason or logic. The proof of the resurrection rests upon compelling historical evidence and in no way contradicts sound reason or logic. Now, I think when I begin to use words like evidence and reason and logic, it sort of tips my hand. It shows I want to challenge another myth that is also very popular. Maybe we would say it's similar to the first myth, but it also has a key difference. This second myth says that faith is purely personal and subjective and therefore it's completely divorced from logic and evidence. It's not necessarily saying that every religion is, as good, is just as good as another, but it says the way we come to know what is truth is strictly by an internal process that must not be examined or tested by objective facts or logic that informs our belief. And in response to this, we need to insist that Christians of all people should not feel threatened by truth. And so we must be willing to examine our own beliefs to see if they make sense, to see if they're consistent, to see if there are compelling reasons to accept them. So I want us to take a closer look. So far we have been looking at the witness of the apostles in the book of Acts. It's been very clear, I trust, what their claims are, what they presented as truth. But how are we supposed to judge if that witness is true? After all, we have to be honest and admit that we do not have access to the same proofs or signs that many of these, first Christ these Christians in the first century did. What we have are the written accounts of some of these early believers. Some of these accounts are specifically stated to be written by eyewitnesses, like the Gospel of John. Or as in Luke's case, at least it is directly based on verbal accounts of those who were eyewitnesses. Well, we think about this, and it really doesn't leave us with a lot of options. Right? We have already looked at enough of these claims to see the New Testament writers are not doing fiction. Okay, they're not writing a clever story meant to amuse or entertain. They intend to be believed by their readers. So that leaves us with just a few possibilities. Either they're mistaken, they're sincere, but they're just wrong in what they believe. Or they are telling a completely fabricated lie. Or they're telling the truth. Now we could also say, that it is some combination of those three, I realize. It may be, someone would propose, maybe they're partly telling the truth, they're partly mistaken in some details, they partly exaggerate to make their story better. 
But we don't have to make it that complicated because we've already seen the whole story hinges on one central fact. One claim that lies at the heart of the whole Christian faith, and that's the resurrection of Christ. Take away the resurrection and you take away the identity of Christ. You take away the forgiveness of our sins. You take away our peace with God. You take away our hope of eternal life. There's nothing left. So this is what we need to look at. How are we to make sense of this one central claim of the Christian scriptures? How are we supposed to interpret the facts of history, especially the beginning or origin of the Christian faith and the Christian church? What do we know about the origin of Christianity? Well, historically, it's undisputed. Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire in the early 4th century. It's also undisputed that before that, it was, before it was accepted officially, it was a hated and persecuted religion for the better part of three centuries. And for the most part, it's undisputed that the earliest Christians found their roots in the teachings and deeds of one man called Jesus of Nazareth. We look at the New Testament record. It's unmistakable. The New Testament writers want us to believe that this Jesus rose from the dead. A number of them claim to have seen Jesus alive with their own eyes. We have to ask ourselves, are they telling a lie? Does that explanation make good sense? Many of these first-generation Christians gave their lives willingly. As I mentioned earlier, they gave their lives for the message they proclaimed. And I know that there are, I realize, there are those who give their lives for something that is false. Okay, we can think of German soldiers or kamikaze pilots in World War II, right? Islamic terrorists and suicide bombers in our own day. They give their lives for what they believe in, but that's the point. They believe in it, however tragically mistaken they are. What you don't have is people willingly, gladly go into the executioner's acts when they know the story they have told the world is a big fraud. So I think we can eliminate the idea that the New Testament writers purposely cooked up a big lie to deceive the world. So that leads us to another possibility we have to consider. Perhaps the earliest disciples and the New Testament writers who said they saw Jesus risen from the dead were just mistaken. It looked like Jesus, but it was really someone else, or he never died in the first place. It looked like he was dead. Everyone thought he was dead, but he was never really all the way dead. Because after all, and here is another myth that's commonly believed, the writers of the New Testament were ignorant, superstitious men trying to explain the things they experienced without the benefit of a modern scientific worldview. So we really can't blame them if they were easily deceived. They didn't know about the laws of science. Their beliefs about life and death were primitive. And so it was relatively easy to convince them that their beloved master had risen from the dead. Again, we need to turn to the pages of the New Testament and see if that interpretation of history makes any sense when we compare it to what we read here. Earlier, we read the account of Thomas from John 20, right? Thomas. 
wasn't exactly primed and ready to believe, was he? And we actually see this with all the disciples. If you would, turn to Luke 24. Luke 24. According to Luke and the other gospel writers, a number of women were actually the first ones to visit the empty tomb. Here in Luke 24, we're told it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. That's verse 10. These, by these things, he means uh, the empty tomb and the appearance of the angels who told them Jesus was risen. But notice the response of the apostles to the women in verse 11. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Not exactly, oh, that settles it. These women said it, so it must be true. Very skeptical, aren't they? Very hard to be convinced. The New Testament accounts consistently show us men who are flabbergasted and amazed and initially find it hard to believe. Because even though it's true, they didn't have all the knowledge of modern science and chemistry and biology. They had enough information to know that people who die don't come back from the dead. And it's only in the face of undeniable, compelling proof that they acknowledge this has really happened. Now, I know that people make mistakes all the time. In fact, I could not begin to count all the mistakes I've made in my life. But on those occasions when I have lost a friend or a loved one to death, I have never been deceived into thinking that they rose from the dead. And I don't think anyone here has ever made that mistake. How do you convince this many people not only the 11 apostles, but a number of others as well. How do you convince this many people that their friend, their mentor, their teacher, the one they have stayed with and eaten with and traveled with and so on for three years, how do you convince them he's been put to death on a Roman cross, laid in a tomb for three days, and then come back to life? It's not that they were gullible and ready to believe. What we see over and over again if we had time, we would look at Matthew 28, verse 17. It mentions a similar point. What we see over and over is, in the face of compelling proof, their hearts are hard. They're slow to understand. They're not ready to believe. Because the truth is, they had the same problems in their age that we have today. They had a lack of faith in God's power, and they failed to question their own presupposition or their own assumptions that the same cycles we've always known always have to continue. In other words, a lack of evidence was not the problem. It was a lack of willingness or ability to see that their beliefs were wrong. If we return to the book of Acts, we can see Paul challenging what is basically this, that same assumption on the part of King Herod Agrippa. Let's go back to Acts 26. In the last part of the book, Paul is accused by the Jews 
of stirring up riots and attacking the Jewish religion. And when the Roman authorities investigate, they find the controversy all centers on a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive, is the way it's described in chapter 25. Well, now, when Paul makes his case before Herod Agrippa in chapter 26, he asks this question in verse 8. Look at that with me. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? That's a very reasonable question. He's challenging their assumptions. Seeing the dead raised to life is outside the realm of our ordinary experience. That's certainly true. But what reason do we have for saying that God could never do such a thing? We're talking about the same power that has created galaxies. The same power that created life on a particular planet in one of those galaxies. Is it more difficult for God to raise his son from the dead than to breathe life into dust and create the first man? Well, it really all comes down to how we think about God, doesn't it? And by the way, everyone has a God. Even if your God is impersonal matter and energy and laws of physics. But if you, who are not God, assume that you can set limits on what God can or can't do, what does that say about your arrogance? So you see why this is not simply an intellectual question. It's a moral question as well. When God has revealed himself as clearly as he has, what reason do we have for rejecting that revelation? And that brings us to our third and final point. The proof of the resurrection demands a personal response of faith and obedience to the risen Christ. The proof of the resurrection demands a personal response of faith and obedience to the risen Christ. Now when we speak about this personal response to the risen Christ that is required from every man and woman and child, we need to be clear it involves much more than just checking the right box on a religious survey, okay? More than putting right opinions down on a piece of paper and saying, that's me, that's what I believe. The faith that we see required in the New Testament is more than faith in a set of doctrines. It is faith in a person, and it is a person on whom we are not allowed to place any limits, either on who he is or on what he requires from us. In fact, the terms of becoming a follower of Jesus are absolute, aren't they? Here's what Jesus says in Luke 14. If anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sister, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. 
And this does not mean Jesus is telling us we have to first learn how to get our lives into complete perfect obedience so that then we can qualify to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But he is telling us what we're signing up for when we engage to follow him. It's what is involved in this lifelong process of learning to be his disciple. You now have a new master who teaches you patiently, little by little, to bring your life into conformity to his will. But when push comes to shove and questions about loyalty and allegiance are made clear, you only have one option. Whatever he asks from you is his. And if you see the risen Christ for who he really is, this is not a dreadful prospect. It is something you embrace. It's something you want. And so... Speaking to my brothers and sisters who love Christ, who know that his will for them is only good and holy and beneficial, as we close, I would like to quickly mention three areas of life that are addressed. There could be, there's many more, but here are three areas I want to mention that are addressed in particular passages in the New Testament, and these are all directly impacted by our knowledge of the resurrection. The first one, conveniently enough, all these three areas begin with a P. So the first one is our possessions. How do we look at our possessions? We looked at this in discipleship hour last week in the Acts class. The end of Acts 4 is talking about the great unity that was experienced by these early believers in Christ. And the attitude that they had toward their material possessions is described in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Where did that perspective come from? Well, the very next verse tells us what else is happening in their midst. Verse 33, and, with, and, the, and the language there draws a very strong connection between all the phrases. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And then the following verse, verse 34, shows how that grace was demonstrated or manifested among the believers. There was such giving and sharing taking place in this group of Christians that there was not a needy person left among them, is what he says. So in regard to our possessions, brothers and sisters, we need to examine our hearts. Of course, we enjoy a standard of living that is the envy of most of the world. And we have among us those who are struggling financially. So let me ask you, how much is your attitude toward those in need affected by the truth of Jesus' resurrection? If Jesus has not been raised and your only hope of happiness is in the things of this world, you might as well try to accumulate and keep as many things as you can get. But the resurrection of Jesus teaches us to view things far differently. The truth of the resurrection even goes so far as to challenge and reshape our attitudes towards personal safety. That's our second P. Okay? 
personal safety. It's been a, a few months since we looked at 1 Corinthians 15. But remember there, Paul is drawing a very tight, logical connection between the resurrection of Christ and our own resurrection. And one of the key points that he makes in his flow of argument is, why would we be living the kind of lives we are if we didn't believe that we would be raised from the dead? In verse 30, he asks, why are we in danger every hour? (laughs) In other words, why would we voluntarily expose ourselves to the kinds of dangers that come from preaching the gospel? That doesn't make sense if you're living for this world. It only makes sense if you're living for the resurrection. So there's our possessions, our personal safety, and finally there's the matter of our attitude toward people. Now, I don't only mean that we should value people over possessions. That's true. But what I'm talking about is something that Jesus challenges us with at a very fundamental level back in Luke 14. telling us to consider what kind of people we're willing to hang out with and invite over to our house. So I want to read his words starting uh, Luke 14, starting in the middle of verse 12. When you give a dinner or a banquet, Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And notice why he says to do this. It's not because we're expected to give up any hope of any kind of reward. It's what kind of reward we're instructed to expect and when. Verse 14, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus is teaching us here where to place our hope and what it looks like when we place our hope in the resurrection. We no longer choose to hang out only with people who are like us, people who look like us, who have the same level of of education, who are on the same socioeconomic level. Brothers and sisters, I believe we still have a long way to go in learning this lesson. I have to admit, I have heard criticisms at times, and perhaps you have as well, that we are not a warm, welcoming church when it comes to showing acceptance and sharing our lives with those who have a hard time fitting in. And I'm not saying this because I want to motivate you with a load of guilt. I want to motivate you with what Jesus did, the hope of the resurrection. You know, you don't have to look far to find the equivalent of these kinds of people that Jesus was talking about. You can find men and women suffering from Alzheimer's at the nearest nursing home. You run into people in the checkout line at Walmart that make you feel a little bit uncomfortable because they don't look or act quite right. 
Do you stop and think what it will be like if they come to know the gospel and how glorious they will appear in the resurrection? You see how that's meant to make a difference in the way we think, the way you respond to different situations in everyday life? What is different about your life because you know Jesus has risen from the dead? There's only one acceptable answer to that question, and that's everything. Everything is different because Jesus has risen from the dead, and in that resurrection you find the certainty that you, his followers, will one day be raised as well. So look at him. Look at this risen Jesus. And know that in him, God is for you. Know that the one who gave him up for us all will also freely give us all things. Know that neither death nor life nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We know these things because Jesus is risen from the dead. He has ascended to the throne of God. He is seated at God's right hand, and he lives forever to make intercession for us. He is worthy of all confidence and trust. Trust in him, the victorious eternal, risen Son of God. Let's pray. Our Father, there are times when our hearts are broken, when we look at the majesty and worthiness of Christ, and then we look at our weak and pitiful response, and we give reason to others to question if we truly believe in this one. We want to affirm this morning that we do trust in your Son, the risen Christ, and we want to ask of you your strength, that we would live out a life consistent with that faith. Would you accomplish your purpose in us? Would you give us boldness to give witness to the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. Would you use us to bring the knowledge of his gospel to many others, to care for others, to show your compassion and purity and holiness, your great character, your revelation of yourself to mankind. Would you use us as he produced that faith in us? We pray it all in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.